This is a pretty impressive chapter that we are studying together. Now, really, you don't have much of a choice. I picked it, and uh, I didn't pick it for any other agenda at first than that uh, I wanted a good challenging passage to go to and one that I hadn't touched in 30 years. And here it is, uh, the book of James, really. But uh, also the section that we're on is uncomfortable. And uh, I think it's a good challenge for all of us to go through this passage together. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Not only can we sing it, but as we learn it, we can live it. And that's what it's meant for us, that we might uh, not just be doers of the word, or hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We have your word open in front of us right now. We are at that place where we either follow your direction or we don't. I pray that our ears and our hearts are open today as we take some time now to study from it. Guide us through it as your Holy Spirit so capably is doing to change us from the inside out to make us like Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. I just noticed that. Green light. Good news. Okay. Simple word for you. Money. Are you uncomfortable? The Bible says a lot about it, you know. This passage in James chapter 5 is not an easy one to swallow. So we're going to start on it today. And it starts in chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read the first six verses, but we're only going to take half of it this morning. By design, not because of time or anything, because I don't look at the clock anyway. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which have been witnessed by you, or withheld by you, cries out against you, The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, that a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Boy, is this a good one. Remember our series right now, we've started last week, and we're going to be in this until uh, Christmas season comes, all right? And that is the examination of living faith. That we can all testify, and I hope we can all testify that we have faith in Jesus Christ. We could talk about the doctrines of faith, the great theology of faith, it's a wonderful theme, and I love it, and I love the times we're in that topic. Living faith is the practical side of it. It's where you take what you know, and you do it. 
And that's not easy, especially in some departments where living faith is a, it is, it's a great challenge for us. And that's my goal in our series here being uh, that our examination of living faith ought to lead to practicality. How we live day by day and, and what we do. What, what is the activation of living faith? The activation of it. What makes it work? And how does it work? And, and how can that be seen in me? In James, I told you last week, the first chapter is a discussion on the examination of living faith and the evidence that it's there. He does that in the first chapter. The examination and the evidence. And then from there on, chapter 2 all the way through chapter 5, he gives us the applications of it and what it looks like in light of this and this and this and this and this. And there are some things that it reacts to, in the sense that it sees it and it steps back. It doesn't want to be a part of that. And there are issues like partiality in chapter 2, 1 through 3. There is selfishness in chapter 4, 1 through 12. There is self-sufficiency in chapter 4, 13 through 17. And where we are right now, there's self-indulgence. And there's... Living faith ought to respond to that and react to that and step back and say, I don't want to be part of that. That's not in keeping with what faith is all about. But there is also things that are produced by living faith. And we see that in chapter 2 as well, verse 14 through 26. Works are produced by faith. Living faith will show itself in works. And James makes a great point of that. Self-control in chapter 3, the first 18 verses. That's what's produced by living faith. And what we will also see in chapter 5, reliance upon God. That will be the last half of our study from verse 12 through verse number 20. So, our focus here in chapter 5, and I know we started at the end of the book, that's just where we're going to work from in this type of study. We're going to look at the two vital errors that the rich have. That's interesting to say it that way. But these things come upon them very quickly. One is, they become dependent on their wealth. They live that way. Dependent on their wealth. And the second thing is that they have self-regard because of their wealth. Self-regard because of their wealth. Those are two things that are addressed here in chapter 5. Because we're going to deal with self-indulgence, and then we're going to deal with dependence. Alright? That's our study. That's where we're at. So the first three verses, we just read those. And you will notice as you look right into the text here, he is addressing a group called rich. You see it? Right there in verse number one. That's who he calls out in the first three verses especially. He's talking to the rich. What he says is pretty straightforward. Your riches, verse number 2, are corrupted. They've rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. He says in verse number 3, your gold and your silver has rusted. The King James Version, if you have that this morning, they cankered. That doesn't sound good, does it? Sounds like you need medicine for that. Nick, you got something for us? What do you do with cankered gold and silver? It's cankered. 
You have laid up your treasure in the last day, he says in verse number 3. These are the straightforward statements of the passage, aren't they? You can see them right there, black and white. That's what he's addressing, that's what he's talking about. When I read that, I couldn't help this, and maybe you couldn't either. There's another passage in Scripture that comes to mind when you talk about rust and moth and rust and all these other things concerning money. And it was what Jesus had said back in Matthew chapter 6. In verse number 19, 20, 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what? That's where your heart will be also. That's where it will be also. Here's a picture for you. Because we have to step way back in the days of James. Right on the heels of the life of Christ. Not very far in time difference. A.D. 33, the ascension of Christ. I'll give you a rough idea of numbers. Uh, A.D. 49, James is writing this book. The church is about 16 years old. All right? And he's addressing this. So do you think people had changed much in 16 years? Probably not. The word hypocrite comes to mind in the days of Christ. How many times he used that phrase for people? Hypocrites who who act one way, but in reality there's something else. He said this, Jesus did, in Matthew chapter 5. And this was a stunning statement to everyone there. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, whoa, could you imagine hearing that for the first time? Because you have grown up impressed with the Pharisees and the scribes and the way they portray themselves. The way they parade around, the way they pray, the way they give, the way they fast. It's all there. Everyone saw it. And they thought, if anybody is righteous, they are. They used to say something to this effect, that there are certain people guaranteed to get into heaven. And the Pharisee was one of them. Just by their appearances. And Jesus said something stunning to them, and I'm sure it probably floored a lot of them to think that. What do you mean surpass their righteousness? That means if they're rich, I need to be richer? If they pray, I need to pray more? If they, if they give to the poor, guess what? Boy, I better really be dishing it out, right? If I've got to surpass that. But Jesus went and clarified it. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be seen of men. And guess who he brought up every time he illustrated that? Those scribes, those Pharisees, he called hypocrites. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, when you give to the poor, do not be like the hypocrites. Don't sound your trumpet in the street so that people can see you before you hand it to the person in need. Don't do that. He says, when you pray, in Matthew chapter 6, oh, don't be like the hypocrites. Oh, they love to stand on the street corners, and they love to pray to be seen of men. And they think they're being heard by their many words. 
said, don't be like them. He says in chapter 6 as well, and when you fast, don't look like them. Don't put on your gloomy face and parade around like you're, you're dying or you're on a diet or something. Look like you're fresh. Look like you're healthy. Look like you're enjoying life. Look like you're enjoying the benefits of God. I've added all that because that's the opposite. Because they neglected their appearance. And they came across as, as those who were gloomy, pathetic, sickly even. Because they're fasting to gain God's approval. Don't be like them. When Jesus spoke about them in Matthew 23, He says the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. He says, for they say things and they do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on the shoulders of men but they are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And they brought in their phylacteries and lengthened their tassels of their garments. And they led the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by men. These are the same people that apparently made it into the church James was writing to. They were parading around in their wealth. They gave the appearance of godly, spiritual, righteous men because of their appearance. They loved to be seen that way. They wanted to be marked out as special. You're saying, how do I know this? James chapter 2, look at it. The first four verses of James chapter 2. Look at what he says. This is what James is addressing right there in the pew. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay attention, special attention, mind you, to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, here, you sit here in a good place. That's front row seat. And you say to the poor, you stand over there. Well, no, why don't you sit down here as a footstool? Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? James is addressing that even in the church he's writing to. They haven't changed much. That's the picture. You got the picture now? Let me talk about their perspective. Look at what's in their hands. Go back to James chapter 5. That's the rich. And what do they hold in their hands? They hold in their hands coins. Let's represent that as a coin. Gold and silver things. They hold in their hands something that is corrupted. Something that is rotted. Something that is rusted. Here's an interesting word. It's the word for putrefy. (laughs) Isn't that pretty? How do you like a pocket full of that? That's the way he describes it. They're coins. They're rotted. They're rotted. Your gold and your silver are rusted. Your garments 
our moth-eaten. They stand there in an attitude. Like, I must be somebody. I've got these coins. I've got these garments. He says, you could only see them for what they really are. They're rusted and rotted and moth-eaten. You know, that is the problem with it. Save it all you want. But what comes of it? It decays. The things of this earth decays. We know that, don't we? They decay. And there they are with pockets full of decay, claiming that they're somebody because of it. Here's their problem. Their problem is that they saved it up for the last days. That's a simple thing to express to you, I think. I'm going to try. They have wealth as the value of their soul. To save it up for the last day has behind it this concept. I need this for the day of judgment. I need this because if it impresses man, it's going to impress God. Look at what I've done. And they carry this pile that they've accumulated, hoping that somehow that might gain them entrance into God's kingdom, that that might be the ticket. You know, it's kind of golden, right? They think that that is the solution. That's what impresses God. They don't read in Scripture that God shows no partiality (laughs) because they have duped themselves into thinking that that will impress God. And they walk before Him with that pile. And what that pile is, is that which they will exchange for their soul. That's what it is. There's something I want to say. It's simply about that. Because wealth is a poor substitute for your soul. Matter of fact, let me go further to say this. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26, He said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here's the sad thing. If we would live as if money counts in the day of judgment, I'll just throw it out that way. We have made our souls equal to the value of money. And money rots. And money rusts. And money can get stolen. You cheapen your soul when you base it on wealth. You cheapen it. That's reality. You cheapen not just your soul, but you also cheapen God's grace. Because now you're saying that God's grace is based on your wealth. And you know very well, you're saved by grace, not by works, not by anything else, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. So we cheapen God's grace, we cheapen the blood of Christ, we cheapen our souls. And here's the reality. If Christ could have saved you by money, He had it. But He didn't do that, did He? 
He didn't do that. I love what Peter had to say. First Peter 1.18, favorite passage of mine. You were not redeemed with perishable things. And I'm glad he said that, because that means your soul is equal to anything perishable. You're not redeemed with perishable things, he says. Things like silver and gold, which are from your futile way of life inherited by your forefathers. I, the Greek is here. You're not saved by a single gold thing or a single silver thing. It's even singular there. It's kind of cool. So you can't pull out a dime and say, that's going to do it. All right? He says, that's a futile way you've got from your forefathers. But you are redeemed with the precious blood, as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see, when you stand before the Lord, your bank book is not considered, folks. When you stand before the Lord, your 401k is not considered. When you stand before the Lord, your investments, your collections, your piles, they mean nothing. They mean nothing. Up in Warsaw, Indiana, there was a joke one Sunday. It was kind of a funny thing to see. There was a hearse. One of the funeral homes set a hearse out in a church parking lot. And on the back of the hearse, they had a U-Haul truck, the trailer. And there was just a sign. There was just a little concept because you know what the statement is. You just can't take it with you. And they were trying to say, oh, yes, you could. U-Haul would help you. Um, but it was just kind of a funny thing to see that day. The reality is, we don't take this before the throne. Now, putting this back into our context here, why are the rich people called to weep and howl? Why are they going to have misery? Because they have put their dependence upon those things that don't last. And when they hit the realization of that, that's a wasted life. Wasted efforts. Wasted investments. Waste, I, now, am I, am I saying don't invest? No. Am I saying don't, don't work? No. <laughs> I'm not saying anything like that. When you think that your money is an exchange for the value of your soul, you've got a problem. That's the deal. When you think somehow that money is going to help you in spiritual things, you've got a problem. That's where it starts to rub. That's where it starts to show you, uh, I think I've gone too far with this whole thing. I've gone too far. That's what James is addressing. Indulgence. Indulgence. Peter made it real simple one day. He and James were walking down the road. Oh, John. He and John were walking down the road to the temple one day. There's a man who was laying, laying there by the temple. He was calling for alms. He needed some help. And, and uh, he had been there his whole life. They said he was lame from his mother's womb. And he begged alms to everyone who entered the temple. And Peter and John were walking by, and, and they stopped this man held out his little plate, you know. He's wanting some, a little bit. That'd be nice. Smiling at him, maybe. Peter and John, they just stare at him. Fix their gaze. I love the way he says that. They fix their gaze on him. And they said, look at us. He looked at him, expecting to receive money. And Peter says, 
I do not possess silver or gold. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. This man wanted money. He thought that was the solution. But he had asked for the same thing day after day after day for all his life. And did it ever solve his problem? No. It didn't matter if there was two cents in there or two million dollars in there. It never solved his problem. Only Christ could. That day was brought to his attention. Only Jesus could make you walk. That's a simple picture. But understand it. I hope you do. We could amass all that we want. But Jesus is the only answer for us when it comes to our soul. There's no other solution. You could collect and collect and collect. But the problem is, as James is addressing here, you have laid up treasure in the last day. That's the Greek word for hoarded. You hoarded, 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 because you said the judgment day was coming. And there's a sad realization when they get there and realize that it amounts to nothing. There's misery with that. There's weeping and there's howling for that because it's a frightful realization that rusted coins and worn out garments and seats in the top place, they all witness against you. That's what the text says. Verse 3, even the rust will witness against you. That's a horrible reality. He also says this in verse 3, it will consume your flesh like fire. And I I can't honestly say I understand that perfectly. But the idea that it's going to burn you. It's going to burn you. We use that phrase sometimes figuratively. But I don't know what it's like to have a conscience that is seared with pain, that is undergoing torture for all of eternity because I tried to gain something and failed. And I lost it all at the judgment seat. I'm assuming, folks, just in those words, that I'm addressing an unbeliever when I say the rich. But what if it's not? It's a sad thought that they thought wealth would be their, their uh, answer in the end. But what if James is addressing a believer here? Is there a time when a believer's works are going to be set up before the Lord and the torch is going to be lit to them to see if they're worth anything? Corinthians talks about that. Take the pile of all that you've done. Take the pile of it. It doesn't matter if it's wood or or stone or gold or silver or hay, whatever. You've built this with your life. You've invested yourself with your life. You've done all these things in the name of Christ. Wearing the robes of righteousness. You made it look good. You piled it all up. But you did it all with a self-indulgent attitude. You did it for yourself. You stand before the Lord with all your piles of all these great things you've done, which you've done for yourself. And I light the torch to it, and what happens? Boom, it's gone. And the way Paul describes it is, Oh, you're saved. You're saved. By fire. It's close. (laughs) I don't mean it that way. It's not close if Jesus saved you. But you have no works. 
You have nothing to show Him, to honor Him, to glorify Him. You have nothing to lay at His feet. It's all been burnt up. Some people say, well, Scripture says there's no crying in heaven. It does say that, after the new heaven and earth are made. You know what that implies? I hate to say it this way. I think some people might be shocked at the believer's judgment seat. When they see everything they've done for themselves was consumed in a puff of smoke. I think that's a sad thing. Now, why does pastor do all this today? To make you feel miserable right now? To say, hey, this is, this is where it's at? I think we're living in a crucial day. When we talk faith, but living faith, that's a different picture. The world needs to see living faith. The fact is that many of us could claim faith and live like them. That's easy to do. We can live self-indulgently. We can live selfishly. We can live with partiality. We can live in all these departments that James is addressing. We can act just like that. He is addressing the church. I don't want to be that way, do you? It says, this is what faith looks like. Faith that honors the Lord, has the attitude that's right before the Lord, who looks at the things of the world and says, oh, that's temporary, that's temporary, that's temporary. That's eternal. I'm going to give myself to that. That's different. That's living faith. That's what we're studying here in this passage, and I really wish I had more time, because look, I've got two more pages to go. Clock's over, but that's the way it is. I wanted to challenge you with something right along this line here this morning because it comes right back at me, folks. When I read these words, I thought, ooh. Obviously, we don't want to be included in this group that he's addressing, do we? We don't want to be like that. Jesus has said, don't be like that. So let's take this to heart, all right? When it comes to living faith, let's be different. Let's be different. Let's do it the way God does in us and through us. The way Jesus taught us in Scripture. The way the Holy Spirit convicts us. Let's live by faith. Live by it. Act it out. Don't trust that to save you. Don't trust that to save you. Don't trust that and that's what your life's all about. Trust Christ. Live that way. Now that's just a summary of it all. Next week we'll go into more detail, okay? Heavenly Father, even this is a lot for us. This is a challenge. A big thing for us to know. Help us. Help us to see it. Help us to live in such a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, our world desperately needs to see genuine believers. Those who not only say faith, but do it. Show it in every part of their life. Help us, Lord. For when we ask to be different, we set ourselves up in a world that doesn't like different. And for that, we must trust you more. Thank you for your careful, patient, persistent love. The way you work in our lives to make us like Christ. Keep doing it, Lord, we pray. 
keep challenging us as we go along this way. Thank you for that kind of love that would do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.